So one of the hardest things to do after a battle is to, I know you have no idea what I'm referencing, uh, is to figure out a path forward to peace. But it must be done, otherwise the cracks will continue to widen until the breaking point. On the rarest of occasions, my wife Renee and I have had slight misunderstandings. And since neither of us are competitive, neither of us have strong opinions, we're able to glide through them with perfect calm and ease. Right, honey? Okay, you guys don't believe me at all. All right. Uh, no, okay, so not every time uh, do we see eye to eye, but at the end of the day, or perhaps halfway through the next day, uh, we know that the only option is for us to come together, and even though we still might ultimately end up, not end up on the same page, the importance of the unity of our relationship far outweighs our personal opinions. In fact, when we're at our best, we're able to process each other's perspectives without fear of losing our own because we know that we're better together when we do. To be sure, there's wisdom and discernment needed, uh, and not just with our relationship, but with any relationship that we share with other people. If there's a wrong to be righted, it's vital that we speak the truth. But it's godly wisdom that helps us to differentiate between what is truth and what is just our perspective. And that's the difference between being stuck and growing in division. Now, if it's a close relationship like a spouse or a good friend or a child or maybe a necessary relationship like one with a coworker or with a boss, we might feel a little bit more incentivized to accept or tolerate someone else's perspective or perhaps maybe even be compelled to appreciate it and be swayed by it. Uh, I love my wife, my wife loves me, uh, how could she not? And we make compromises. And we do the work uh, not begrudgingly, uh, that's an important detail, uh, because we start off wanting to do that. And it's necessary to do so to have the relationship we want with each other. We pursue peacemaking with one another because we know that's the path to a prosperous relationship. And peace is such an important uh, part and theme throughout Scripture. Peace is mentioned over 400 times in the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, the word peace is the word shalom in Hebrew and is a state of wholeness, completeness, and harmony that is intended to resonate in all relationships. Uh, When used as a greeting, shalom was a wish for outward freedom from disturbance as well as an inward sense of well-being. To a people constantly harassed by enemies, for example, the Israelite nation, peace was the premier blessing. Uh, Shalom isn't just reduced to a greeting, however, that we share with one another. Uh, It's also a state of being that is considered to be reflective of the character and nature of God and his concern and care for his people. Uh, There's a godly standard of care and concern that we are to have with one another and to share with other people. And where we come unglued and unbalanced in that peacemaking pursuit that we're all called to is when we pursue prosperity over peace. You've seen it happen before. That's the path of government and nations. And so if you've ever studied history or if you've ever seen the the changes and rise and fall of empires, uh, it's, uh, it's that only when one has become more prosperous, right, by killing more people in war and taking them over, uh, then, then another can for, enforce peace. Uh, that's why, for example, after a presidential election, once the decision is made, everyone's peaceful about it, right? Because pursuing that prosperity over peace leads to peace, right? And we all experienced that this morning as we're all totally joyful 
excited, right? I mean, you know, but that's one of those things we have to deal with, right? And we can look at the voting record of our nation and see, hey, there's, yeah, there's, there's a winner and there's a loser, but there's a dividing line that we still have to deal with the reality of. And so even after the decision is made, even after the decision is fi- finalized, we're still called to pursue peace. And placing hope in earthly kingdoms to provide for peace and prosperity is as old as the first human beings who gathered together in an established community. Um, it's not unfounded. We're called to a communal faith as a way to care for one another, celebrate with one another, encourage one another, and keep each other accountable. Uh, but like all good things, the attention often shifts to the structure of the community as a sort of a perpetual motion machine that if calibrated correctly, it will provide for everyone's personal desires for peace and prosperity, uh, which is impossible for us to create. And it's no less, however, a contentious pursuit that many people make. Uh, much of that seems these days to become, uh, has become more fear-oriented than aspirational, uh, but it hasn't always been that severe. One of the most famous political promises, if I were to ask you, many of you would be able to come up with it, um, that, that has ever been made is that of a chicken in every pot. Have you heard that phrase before? It's mostly associated with Herbert, Herbert Hoover, but he didn't actually say that, nor did he promise that. It's actually from a political ad in 1928 claiming prosperity if his party were to win. I've got a picture of, I know you can't read it, but you can see the title up there, and uh, it makes the point. Uh, The actual quote uh, is that Hoover's party suggests that uh, their prosperity has reduced hours and increased earning capacity, silenced discontent, put the proverbial chicken in every pot, and a car in every backyard to boot. I mean, that all sounds great. And there's a lot more there. I just think it's interesting visually, like that's what a political ad looked like in 1928 and like where we are now with our political ads. Here's a picture and five words, you know, and that's how complicated our thinking has become. Uh, In fact, it keeps going. Uh, It has raised living standards and lowered living costs. It has restored financial confidence with enthusiasm, changed credit from a rich man's privilege to a common utility, generalized the use of time-saving devices, and released women from the thrall of domestic drudgery. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that last part. I don't even know if you're supposed to like read sentences like that these days. Uh, but the Roaring Twenties were great, all up until the stock market crashed in 1928, a year after this political ad, and that led to the Great Depression. Every political maneuver, and it doesn't matter what party or, uh, you know, that we're talking about, has p- consequences that affect different people differently. And so there's never going to be 100% consensus on what the best approach is for any p- one particular thing is going, is going to be. Um, unless you were to establish a kingdom in which the benefits of citizenship ensured for every single person equal parts peace and prosperity. And so Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God, because that's really what this sermon series has been about. It's the only one that can undivide us, because the provision we receive in the kingdom of God gives us the peace and the prosperity that God knows that we need. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. We we do ask that you wear clothes. Um, They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor, the richest king in the nation of Israel's history, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Certainly, God can and does work through society and community to accomplish some of these things. And we can recognize the blessing of his provision within those systems, to be sure. And we're all going to have opinions about how we might go about that as a nation or as a community. Uh, And it's certainly worth careful consideration and dialogue in how we might work together. However, it's when we place the majority of our hope and our trust and our faith in those systems that we find ourselves uh, with lives that are more anxious and less prepared to seek the kingdom and God's righteousness first. And the point that Jesus is making isn't limited to just food and clothing. Perhaps uh, to his point, we can be and should train ourselves to be content with peace and prosperity in our basic needs being provided. The big picture of the kingdom of God, however, marks how we approach the entirety of every day and the expectations that we have met. Consider Jesus' prayer for his disciples that he teaches them earlier in this chapter in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And also, we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, Jesus doesn't have to use the term, the specific political language of the kingdom. He could have replaced that with something else. He could have just talked about something that would feel a lot more, you know, the community of God or the family of God, something a little bit more palatable for us. But he uses the word kingdom uh, to create specific tension between how we think about life should go or at least how we, you know, rabbit trail off naturally in, in how we approach and think about life. He does this intentionally to expose the tension that did then and continues now to exist, exist and to identify the solution. God's reign is not distant. Yes, it's both then, you know, we get to look forward to the future and being with him for all eternity as followers of Jesus, but it's also now. The only obstacle is what we're willing to give up to live within it. Several years ago, I had the privilege of attending a small gathering of fellow preachers for a three-day mentoring retreat with a retired uh, pastor. And one of the sessions that we had was about the self-sacrificial nature of ministry and the perception issues that impact one's ministry along the way. So here, here's the example. This, by all external measures, this uh, preacher was retired at the time but had an incredibly long and incredibly successful ministry. And so, I mean, he essentially became a mega church pastor. So his church was huge. And along with that huge responsibility came with some, you know, neat connections. One of them was there's a guy in his church as a general manager of a luxury car dealership. 
And so he approached him one day and he said, hey, here's the deal. Just, just want to throw this out there. I can, I can get you a, a brand new car from this luxury dealership, um, but it's got to be a lease. And in fact, um, I, could, I could make sure you have one every year. The catch is it has to be a Lexus, a BMW, or Mercedes, and it has to be brand new, and you have to get a new one every year. All right, so that's the deal. Are you, are you in or are you out? Now, what, what would you do? What, what would your response be? You know, how would you, how would you approach that? Seems like a tough decision, right? Or a no-brainer. I mean, come on, yes, take the free car. You know, that's, that's obvious you should do that. This person is trying to serve you, you know, and there's all kinds of ways you can think about that. But actually, after some thought and consideration, this megachurch pastor turned the, down the offer, which doesn't seem uh, too consistent with a lot of the times how we think about megachurches, right? Uh, but turns down the offer and kept his mid-sized sedan. So why? Why would he do something like that? That would be crazy, right? Nobody, nobody makes that choice. I know what I would choose. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Because while he could afford to purchase one of those cars, you know, on, on his own, he was concerned that the perception of others in his congregation about why he was driving a brand new luxury vehicle every year might be an obstacle in effectively communicating the gospel and the kingdom that he was a part of. Many pastors I know, including myself, regularly feel the need to explain why they have the things that they have or the condition of things that they have because they don't want the misconception that the gospel is a pursuit of profitability and that our joy and hope and peace isn't tied to a world-defined prosperity. Yet, there's also a whole segment of belief among some Christians in what is called the prosperity gospel. It's a very real thing that exists. While many Christians wouldn't identify with that theology, however, it doesn't mean that we don't feel the pull of it and that it affects how we think about what God has provided for us. By definition, the prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel means that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God. Who doesn't want to believe that, right? And that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's acquisition of those material pursuits. In contrast... Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So for us, there's an important reminder that at one time, as followers of Jesus, we gave up everything everything in our lives in exchange for the joy of what Jesus gave up everything for. The peace and prosperity that we enjoy within the kingdom of God is wholly unearned, it's wholly undeserved, and holding too tightly to the worldly-based, you know, kingdom definitions of peace and prosperity robs us of, of that joy. When's the last time you were able to feel and experience that joy of giving everything up? in exchange for the greatest gift that God could ever give. And so maybe, maybe you're in a place in your life, whether you feel like, you know, you've been on the winning side or the losing side of the battle, that, that you need to reorient yourself, re, uh, you know, get some uh, equilibrium when it comes to how God defines peace and prosperity as, as citizens uh, of his kingdom. And so let me give you a few things that, that will help with that. The first is this. Practice gratefulness. Are you grateful right now? 
And are you practicing that in a godly manner? According to one study from Michigan State University, a person has 80,000 thoughts a day. 90% of these thoughts uh, we have had before, and 80% are negative. Now, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how generally true that is from the sample size. However, I could certainly see how that would be the case these days. I've been surprised at the number of people that I've either talked to or heard about that they haven't been sleeping well over the last week. You know, and I, I get, uh, get staying up late for, late for a night for sure. Uh, but it's time to exchange our, our news media consumption and social media consumption for being mindful about why we have joy. And so I want to encourage you to maybe this afternoon or just some day this week, take a day, maybe do this every day, write out your anxious thoughts, and then identify how God is feeding and clothing you despite those things. Do that a little each day, and you will change how you think about your thinking. And you will change the way you think about how God is providing. The second is this, is pursue relationships. This This is how we reorient our thinking about peace and prosperity in our lives. The more disconnected from being with people we are, the less life context we appreciate. This may take extra effort on our part, depending on our current situation. But remember, it's our responsibility, our individual responsibility... And privilege to share life with other people because we do not make it on our own otherwise. Uh, People are more lonely and isolated now than ever, but the way to move past that isn't waiting on someone to pursue us, but by us pursuing others. People need neighbors who love them as they love themselves. They need those who will listen, and they need those who will find common ground with them where they once perceived divisive footing, because that's how we share the kingdom. The third is this, give generously. It's through serving others and giving joyfully without the need for compulsion that we gain the perspective of why the first two matter. It's very difficult to recognize the full benefit of the peace and prosperity of the kingdom of God if we are not participants in it. And while giving financially and serving faithfully in a local congregation is a foundational part of that, it's not limited to that either. The way in which we exchange everything for the kingdom and joy has a direct relationship to how we see God move in our lives and the lives of others who discover and share that same joy. Finally, remember this. Sustainable peace and prosperity is found in salvation, not situations. This unburdens us from feeling that we need to make enemies of those who don't desire the same scenarios that we do. But instead, we can seek to understand others' perspectives to build commonality on the need we share for God's sovereignty in our lives and the fact that he creates us all in his image. Put another way, we must be guided by the contentment that comes from God's provision and not what we expect mankind to provide for us. And so let me do this. I'm going to close with this reading from Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
Let me pray. God, may we hear your word, understand that your promise is fulfilled, and that you will continue to be faithful to keep it that way. God, help us to remember the the joy that we exchange everything in our life for when we... um, when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and when we allowed our lives to be changed, we, uh, we entered in relationship with you and had our sins washed away and the gift of the Holy Spirit um, placed within our lives. God, help us to recall that by adjusting our thinking about kingdom building from worldly definitions to your definition. God, help us to see uh, the path forward in our lives for why we can be peaceful and prosperous regardless of what's happening around us because of what you've done in our lives through Jesus. God, we praise you for this. We ask you for uh, your Holy Spirit to keep us mindful of it. And God, we thank you for uh, the community that you put us in uh, to be encouraged in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.